Telling people about Jesus will always get you noticed. In some parts of the world, people will, will think you're a bit odd. In other places, they'll try to kill you. Now over at Kilnest, one of the mission agencies that we support is called Open Doors and they serve persecuted Christians around the world. And one of the ways they do that is they, they put this list together. This is a list of the places in the world where it's most difficult to be a Christian. And so we can pray for them. And top of the list there is North Korea. Here's what they say. North Korea is still the most difficult place in the world to be a Christian. All religious activity is seen as a revolt against the socialist state. Considerable numbers of secret Christians have been discovered, arrested, tortured and sometimes killed. Despite this, many take the risk of sharing their faith and the church is growing. Now in Sheffield or Kilnest, we'll still get noticed when we tell people about Jesus. Perhaps we'll get our leg pulled. Our mates at the student union, well, they'll think we're a bit odd. And if I stick to gospel principles at work, well, as I share my faith in the workplace, I might get overlooked for a promotion or miss the chance to work on the boss's pet project. But telling people about Jesus in North Korea, well, you might get a beating or you might get tortured or you might even end up dead. And as we've seen over these last week's suffering, here is the backdrop to Paul's letter. When Paul first came to plant Philippi Church, well, the authorities got wind of it. Paul and Silas were dragged before the magistrates, beaten, flogged, thrown into prison. Telling people about Jesus has never been a walk in the park. It'll always get you noticed. And getting noticed like that gets you into trouble. And even now, many years later, as Paul writes his letter back in prison, still suffering, still getting a hard time for being a follower of the Lord. I guess it begs the question, why you'd want to suffer like that? Who in their right mind would put themselves in the firing line? But you see, that's just the wrong question. The suffering comes as a consequence of Paul's greater goal, to know and preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so as we compare ourselves to Paul, it's, it's easy to feel inadequate, isn't it? And easy to sort of park this kind of life, leave that kind of life, this kind of suffering, leave that to other people. Yes, we might say, Paul is a brilliant example. Such courage, such boldness. But, but if it's all right with you, I'll choose to do something less challenging, if you don't mind. Someone who doesn't want quite so much from me. Someone who doesn't make so many demands on how I live the Christian life. But you know, Paul won't let me get away with saying that. Just uh, flip back, if you will, to uh, chapter 1 of our book, uh, verses 27 and 29. Verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then verse 29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You see, as Jesus Christ calls us to follow him, to believe on him, to trust him for our eternal future, well, so he also calls us to suffer for him, to struggle for him, to fight and contend for him, to speak up for him. Whatever happens, good times and bad, in joy and in sorrow, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
And so here in chapter 3, as we get back to our passage, Paul encourages us, even in times of suffering, to be keeping on with Jesus. It seems there were some there in Philippi who were thinking they've got done with godly conduct, got it licked. Others there who were tempted to compromise because of the situation. You see, they didn't want to suffer. And Paul's response to both groups is the same. Follow me, he says. Not because they must somehow earn their way into God's good books. No, that's not how the cross works, is it? Our rescue by Jesus is full and free. It comes by faith alone, no strings attached. We saw that last week with uh, David. I can never earn my way into God's kingdom, God's favour. But then I can choose to live a godly life in response to what God has done for me. I can have an attitude the same as that of Christ Jesus, chapter 2. Paul knows that, and he gives them his own life and example as an example to follow. Not in a boastful or arrogant kind of way, but because he wants to be an encourager in tough times. He really loves these people, even from prison. He really wants to help. Well, if you're taking notes, our first heading, Paul says, Follow me as I press on for Jesus. Well, in this first section, Paul deals with those who think they've already made it uh, when it comes to godly living. Perhaps he's got in mind the Jewish law keepers from last week, those Judaizers, uh, those who think once they've ticked all the requirements of the law, well, they're home and dry. Or maybe he's got in mind the false teaching of the perfectionists, those who thought they could uh, escape the temptations of sin and live a perfect life here on earth. Or maybe these might just be Christian people who are avoiding hardship, keeping their heads down rather than standing up for Jesus. They're keeping a low profile, hoping not to get noticed. Their foot is off the gas, they're coasting. They may well be true believers, but they've stopped going for it. You know, a hard life of suffering, or the easy life of keeping my mouth shut, what shall I choose? You see what's happened? They've chosen comfort over faithfulness. And Paul sets us an example. He does it the other way around. For him, faithfulness comes first. Remember that goal of verse 10 from last week. Chapter 3, verse 10. More and more, Paul wants to know Jesus. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. You see, that's his goal. That's his aim, knowing Jesus more and more. The most important thing in the whole world to Paul was knowing Jesus, knowing him in person, knowing his sustaining power, knowing what it is to suffer with him. And even as he's saying these things, Paul gives us a sober assessment of where he's at. There's still a long way to go. See how he puts it, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Do you see what he says? Paul simply won't entertain the idea that somehow he's made it as a Christian. He might be an apostle. He may know Jesus better than most. But he's not satisfied. He's not there yet. He's far from being perfect. Paul knows Jesus a bit, yet he longs to know him more. And so what shall he do even in his prison cell? He must press on. And as if to underline the fact, pressing on, well, it comes twice in these Three verses. First, verse 12, he's pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
But what's all that about? Why did Jesus take hold of him? Why was it that Jesus takes hold of any of us? Well, again, it's verse 10, isn't it? Jesus takes hold of us so that we may come to know him personally and in turn bring others to know him too. In this life and through all eternity, Paul presses on to make this goal a reality. And then his second pressing on well, begins verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Well, it's here that we see the sheer effort that Paul's putting in. This is single-minded determination, isn't it? One thing, says Paul, one thing I do, forgetting the past I strain onward toward the future. Forgetting the past, not in the sense that it never happened, but in the sense that it doesn't help me in the race today. In athletics, in any sport, past performance, well, it counts for nothing, does it? It's today's race, today's match, today's thing that counts. It's how, how, how fast I run today. But how fast, how does that work then in the Christian life? Well, isn't it about not being content with past successes? I wonder what, what it would be for you. And what are the highlights as you look back over your Christian life? Well, for me, I, I remember well the Pathfinder camp that we led in 2006. We had a brilliant time. God was uh, certainly at work. Uh, boys and girls there, they made commitments uh, for the first time to follow the Lord Jesus. It was absolutely great to see them as they uh, learned from him and uh, became his followers. Well, I wonder what it would be for you. Uh, maybe it was a, a mission team you served on a few years back or that evangelistic event you sort of uh, helped organise and then uh, invited folks along to. Maybe you were part of Mission England uh, back in 1984. I know some of you guys are not old enough to remember 1984, uh, but some of us were there. You see great highlights as we look back over our Christian lives. Wonderful times that we remember, gruelling hard work as we pressed on for the gospel. And it's right, isn't it, that we look back and thank God for these things, these days that we've known in the past. But you see, here's the warning. Counting on the times when I pressed on in the past is never to be a substitute for neglecting to press on in the present. I must forget what's behind as I strain towards what is ahead. And then, straining forward, verse 13, it's the language, isn't it, of the sports arena. Paul is straining himself, every tendon, every ligament, straining forward to reach the goal. Well, it was the old uh, Sydney Olympics back in uh, the year 2000. Uh, the book here, all about it. And uh, with Steve Redgrave, wasn't it, won his fifth uh, consecutive gold medal in the men's rowing. And you know those five medals that he won? Uh, they didn't come along by chance, did they? Like from the first bang of the starting gun, every stroke of the oar had to count, didn't it? Every muscle straining to press on towards the goal and finally to win the prize. And so, Christian, can I ask you, when was the last time you strained yourself for Jesus? You know, from time to time in life, we all have to strain ourselves, don't we? Uh, let me ask you to think about the last time you got up early or stayed up late or drove somewhere through the night. That was probably for a pretty important reason, wasn't it? To avert a crisis, maybe, or to support someone in need. And maybe you were finishing that project at work or getting your coursework done by the deadline to be handed in. We all strain ourselves sometimes in life. When something is that important to us, we'll manage to put ourselves out. 
And so we need to uh, face the challenge, don't we, to get knowing and serving Jesus into the same category as all those other important things in life. In fact, I need to put Jesus and knowing him ahead of those other things, don't I? Top of the list, the one thing I do. And you see, when I begin to think like that, I'll start to put myself out for Jesus. I'll get myself up early or go to bed late. I'll get myself along to that meeting, make time for that friend, put in the time to study or pray. I might need to rearrange my social life, you know, but I won't mind because knowing Jesus and serving him, well, that comes first, doesn't it? For some, the challenge may be greater still, like moving to a new part of the city, going off uh, with a new church plant, or even as we've been talking, uh, coming to join us at Kilnest, giving up home comforts to serve God in another place, or even in another part of the world. One thing, says Paul, one thing I do, and that's knowing Jesus. Friends, is that your one thing too? Will you make it your one thing, even if you're not a Christian here tonight? Will you make it a priority to find out about Jesus? Get to know him for yourself. And will you make Jesus the one thing in your life that really matters? You see, Paul knew Jesus a bit. His goal was to know him more. Paul had many successes, many prizes here on earth. But he knew there's only one prize that really matters. The prize for which God has called him heavenwards, verse 14. At the end of life's journey, to know Jesus like he's never known him before, as he stands before him, before the throne of God above. Now that's a prize worth having, isn't it? Isn't that a prize worth getting up early for or going to bed late? For Paul, it was a prize worth suffering for, even in prison. And let me say again, just to clarify, it's not that straining myself wins me a place in heaven. It's not about my performance, not about Paul's performance. No, this is about responding in the right way to what I know of Jesus' death for me on the cross. The prize of heaven becomes the focus that keeps me heading that way, pressing on, keeping me going. And you see, this way of thinking becomes for Paul a test of Christian maturity. Have a look there at verse 15. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, well, that too God will make clear to you. You see, the mature Christian is the person who realises just how far they've got to go. They realise they're far from perfect. And so they make knowing Jesus a priority. They press on to reach the goal. And if I think differently from that, well, Paul says, uh, I'm mistaken. I've not quite got it yet. But don't worry, in time, God will make it clear to me. By his grace, well, he'll let me figure it out. So Paul's one thing, it absorbed him, it became his life, he strained himself. He pressed on knowing Jesus and making him known. Not coasting or avoiding a hard time. Follow me, says Paul, as I press on for Jesus. Well, secondly then, our second heading, Paul says, follow me as I live for Jesus, verses 17 to 19. Paul now turns to that group who are tempted to compromise because of their suffering. And his point to them is simply this. We should follow those who live for Jesus and steer clear of those who live for themselves. Verse 17. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. So again, Paul becomes our model. Follow my example, he says. Follow the pattern we gave you. Uh, We need Paul's good example 
to compare with those who live for themselves, and it's there, verse 18. For, uh, as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Now perhaps this is, the verse here is, is perhaps the biggest surprise of our passage tonight. Because Paul talks about enemies of the cross of Christ. Now I don't know who you think about when we talk about God's enemies, but I instinctively think of those on the extremes, don't you? Those who persecute and murder Christians, those who attack congregations, those who burn down churches, those who pass laws to make the Christian faith illegal. They're God's enemies, aren't they? But have another look how verse 18 and 19 fit together. Can we see it there in the Bible? It goes a bit like this. Paul says, follow my example of Christian living as opposed to this other example of leaders who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. No, these aren't the persecutors or the terrorists. The Philippians don't need to be warned about following people like that, do they? This is the enemy within. Those claiming to be Christian, those claiming to be followers of Jesus, yet not living out what it means. And Paul doesn't call them busy or distracted or misguided or backsliding. He calls them enemies of the cross of Christ. Does that shock you? It certainly shocked me as I began to think about it. You see, people who live like this, they break Paul's heart. It brings him to tears to speak like this. So how is it then that we determine the difference? How can we tell if this person or the other is God's enemy or his friend? The test is simple. Look at how he or she lives. God's friends live for Jesus. God's enemies live for themselves. And you see, that's the slippery slope of verse 19. And the first thing to say here is even though they might look the part, these aren't actually real Christians. You see, the first thing Paul says about them, their destiny is destruction. They're so full of themselves, they don't even think they need Jesus. They certainly don't need his cross. They're not trusting in him for their forgiveness. And when they appear before God on that last day, well, they'll only get what they deserve, won't they? But see how it goes on, starting with a bit of self-indulgence, ending up with minds that become permanently dulled to the things of God. Their God is their stomach, he says. You see these people? It's all about me, making sure I'm fed and watered, looking after number one, snout in the trough, you know that kind of person? Those folks who always seem to have the latest gadgets, they visit restaurants that are out of their price range, they drive cars they can't afford. But it gets worse. Paul says they glory. their glory is in their shame. You see, these people don't just indulge themselves, they're people who have cut loose from their moral moorings. Anything goes in this life. If it feels good, I'll do it. Taking their places at the idle feasts and the festivals, excusing their behaviour on the basis, well, they're only showing their mates uh, that Christians know how to have a good time. But you see, when I keep on living like this, sooner or later I lose sight of heaven. I lose sight of God. Totally absorbed by the here and now, living for today, not interested in the future. My mind is on earthly things. Well, Paul doesn't write these things to crush us, but to encourage us to help us make wise decisions about who we're going to follow in the Christian life. 
And back in verse 17, what must we do? Have a look. Follow my example and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Do you see the task? You see what we must do? We must find ourselves some walking, talking examples of people who live for Jesus and then we must follow them. When I was a fairly new Christian down in Harold Wood, I met a chap there who lived for Jesus. Uh, he made it his business uh, to get to know me as a new Christian. He took an interest in how I was getting on. And to him, well, you know, it seemed the most natural thing in the world to speak of the Lord Jesus. Uh, he'd often open up his tatty old Bible mid-conversation. He'd share a verse to make a particular point. He'd ask me what he could pray for. Very often he'd start praying there and then. No, he knew Jesus all right. He'd known him for years. But he wanted to know him more. He was a man always full of encouragement, yet he was never full of himself. And you know, as a new Christian, I got to know that chap, and I'm really glad I did. You know what I thought about him? I thought, I want to be like him one day. I want to know Jesus like he knows Jesus. And I guess as we bring that closer to home, it means each of us finding people that we're going to follow. Now, here in Forward Church, you don't need me to tell you that you've got a great team of leaders around you. Paul and Andrew and David, Ed before him, Ben soon to arrive, Philip, of course, as well as so many others that make up the fantastic team that you've got who lead you. And one of the reasons God gives us leaders like that is that they show us how to live. They model the Christian life. And as they live for Jesus, we must take note of them. Do you see? Take note of their words and their deeds, of their lives and their relationships. Take note of their priorities and the way they love and serve one another. So can I ask you tonight, will you do that? Will you seek out those who live like this, seek out those who follow this pattern? Will you take note of that pattern and will you follow it, follow them as they seek to follow Christ? And of course it's not just the clergy and the paid staff who lead us. There's the PCC, the youth leaders, those who run the children's group. The list goes on and on, doesn't it? Home group leaders, Christianity Explored leaders, the Friday Club student work, so many folks involved. And so again, can I ask you, will you take note of them too as they live a godly Christian life, as they model and live out and show you what it means? And will you follow them as they live for Jesus? And there's one last group we must address, of course, those who find themselves in these positions of leadership uh, and wondering how on earth they can possibly live up to what Paul is expecting of them. Well, let's remember what Paul said right at the beginning. Not perfect, but pressing on. We set our sights on knowing Jesus better and we strain for that day when we shall know him fully. Despite our failures, we realise just how far we've got to go. But we do our best. We know this is part of what God has called us to be as leaders of his church. And so let's follow those who live for Jesus. Our final heading then, Paul says, follow me as I wait for Jesus. Do you find sometimes that life gets you down a bit? I guess if you're in the England football team, that'll be today. But do you sometimes feel consumed by this world with all its trials and struggles, bogged down by life and its problems? But Christian, we have another home. Paul points us to the new heavens and the new earth and to the return of Jesus Christ. Look there, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven 
we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You see, enemies of the cross of Christ have their mind on earthly things. Friends of Jesus have their minds on heaven. Even in this life, heaven is where we belong. Genuine, authentic Christian living is always looking forward, waiting for that day when heaven will be home. Well, I don't know whether uh, you do this at all, but uh, we always book our summer holiday well in advance. And for the past few summers, we've made our way with our caravan down to uh, uh, the Atlantic coast in France. And, uh, you know, to keep me going on a cold, miserable January day, I sometimes have a sneaky look in the travel brochure. I dig it out of the file and I sort of uh, go get it and uh, have a little look through, look at the pictures, uh, look at the pool there. And I just imagine myself there uh, on the sunbed, you know, uh, 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 just enjoying a drink, uh, watching the kids, good book in one hand, and uh, just taking it all in. And, and just a few weeks away now, I can hardly wait. And do you do that? Do you uh, look to those things you look forward to? But now do we think about that, uh, that way about heaven? Is that something that you're looking forward to like that? The new heavens and the new earth, the holy city, and there in the centre of things, Jesus? You see, that's where I'm heading, that's home. And there's an even better reason why we wait like this. Because it's only when I know I'm a citizen of heaven that I'll be prepared to suffer here on earth. The glory of my future with Jesus casts my present in a wholly different light. You see, it means I'll take the stick because there'll be no stick in heaven. It means I'll endure the hardship. None of that in heaven. It means I'll cope with the sadness and the loss and the pain. There'll be no more in heaven. Do you see how it works? How it changes things? And wouldn't life be different if we could live like that? Every thought and action in my present formed and shaped in the light of my eternal future. Living my today in the light of my heavenly tomorrow. When you stop and think about it, it makes sense, doesn't it? If the new heavens and new earth are to be my eternal home, if that's where I truly belong... Well, doesn't it make sense to live like that today, to start getting ready for when I'm uh, finally home? I wonder if you've come across uh, this little book. It's by a Christian minister called Mark Ashton. You know, Mark was diagnosed with an inoperable gallbladder cancer uh, back in December 2008. He died in April this year, aged 62. But before he died, he wrote this little book. It's called On My Way to Heaven. And in this book, Mark says some remarkable things about his own experience of facing death and looking forward to heaven. At one point he says this, Opportunities to tell others about Jesus have now become clearer and more urgent. To share the hope of eternal life is a wonderful privilege, particularly when it's apparent to the non-believer that, an, that eternal life is a reality to me. And then speaking of his new life in heaven, he says, Jesus will be the same indeed. He'll be more real and more true than he's ever been before. My death may be the end uh, at which my physical life on earth ends, but it will also be the moment at which my relationship with Jesus becomes complete. At the end of his life, Mark really knew what it was to wait for Jesus, living on earth as a citizen of heaven, speaking often of the Lord Jesus, looking forward to knowing Jesus more fully than he'd ever known before. 
And so, friends, will, will you do that? Will you live like that? Will you think often of heaven as you live out your days here on earth? Set your minds on things above. Look for Jesus to return. And not just at the end of your lives, but whatever age or stage you find yourselves here tonight. Because when the lights grow dim, when the music fades, well, that's the one thing, isn't it? The one thing that counts, the one thing that really matters. Will you make that your one thing too? To know Jesus more and more until you know him fully? You see, Paul knew it. Mark Ashton, he knew it too. Our challenge is to live it out. Follow me, says Paul, as I wait for heaven. Because you see, telling people about Jesus will always get you noticed. In some parts of the world, people will think you're a bit odd. In other places, they'll try to kill you. But making disciples doesn't happen any other way. And so we need help as we press on for Jesus. And Paul wants to help us. And so he says, follow me. Follow me as I press on for Jesus. Follow me as I live for Jesus. And follow me as I wait for Jesus. Let's pray together.